we are in part 26 of our series through the book of Isaiah, and there's only 28 parts, so that makes it pretty easy. We're wrapping this thing up pretty fast. I entitled this morning's message, Awakening to True Provision, and I am about to force in a concept as my intro leading you to the fill in the blank. Some of you will go, I don't know, that's kind of a stretch, but I don't think so. I was shocked last night that it actually tied into the sermon. I was very surprised. So yeah, it all worked out, you know what I mean? So let me just begin with a, a series of thoughts. If you take notes, of course, uh, you can uh, write down a few of these things. But I want to begin with citing Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Paul said this, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What is the secret to being content? Now, Paul obviously knows, I don't know, but if I was to guess based on scriptural evidence, I would suggest that it's a combination of two things. The first one is a wise and accurate worldview, meaning that you see things not how you want them to be, but how they really are. The second is satisfaction in Christ. Satisfaction in Christ, an accurate and wise worldview matched together with with uh, being sustained in Christ is the key, the secret to being content. So what does that mean? Well, let's talk about an accurate, wise worldview. All right. It's simple stuff like this. Stuff is stuff and it doesn't satisfy. Yeah, you got to lock that in. At some point, we have to mature to the place where we own that stuff is stuff and it doesn't ultimately satisfy. Now, I have had many, many challenges throughout my life with different things in this area, and I always have to hearken back to a time when I was about nine, ten years old, just so I can embarrass myself back into reality. So I'm going to share that embarrassing story with you. It's part of my therapy. There was a brand new gaming system released on the market. It was not that the old one called Odyssey was bad. It was just that there was a new one, and it had exciting things called joysticks, it had a button that you could fire with. Now, this video gaming system was called the Atari 2600. Now, the Atari 2600 was was the bomb. It was awesome. Uh, as a young kid, I, I didn't ask for a whole lot from my mom. We didn't have a lot of money growing up, and so I never really asked for anything. But when this came on the market, I decided to put on my entire sales force attitude and see what I could get through this. So what I said is I've, I said, mom, there's a new gaming system out and I got to tell you, I don't ask for much, but this is the real deal. This is the thing that's going to satisfy me for the rest of my life. And there are a variety of reasons why this is the case. I would like to tell you that if, if I'm satisfied, that makes your world better. Help me help you. Just... <laughs> The reason why I, I will never need another gaming system is that there is a new game on the market called Space Invaders. Now, Space Invaders 
has the little guys that move down. And mom, there are 250 levels. I don't know if you grasp that. You're not really a gamer. So let me express what that is. You can have the little guys go slow. You can have the little guys go fast. You can have the little bases that protect you or the one, or don't. And then you can have like one player or two players. This is very exciting, mom. I will never need another gaming system again. Right. Well, needless to say, that concept has shamed me all the way into my today life, right? Uh, did I ever want another thing again? Of course I did. Was it all that? No, come on. It would seem so exciting and I, I had it all reasoned in my mind why it was going to contain all my joy for now decades to come. And, and the reality is it's just stuff. It, it never gets you what you want. And at some point we need to realize that it, it wasn't the case when we were kids. And it's not the case when we're adults. And you own that. And go, man, why am I trusting so much in stuff? Look back on your life. Is it the items that you purchased or the people you spent time with that have had the most impact? Now, this is where some of you, smart Alex, say, you know what? I bought a car. It is my old car. I work on my car. I take it out for a drive. I like it better than my family. And you know what? It is my own buddy and I go for a ride. It's my church away from church. It is my haven. It is my baby, right? And you got all the, I'll get to you. We'll talk about you in a second. Let's stick to where we're at right now. What tangible item have you had for more than 10 years that is ultimately still satisfying? Most of us would say no, except for the one weird guy, right? Now, here's why things don't satisfy. There are a variety of laws that are operating in our universe that, that pull things away from us. Um, the first one, I would say, is the law of diminishing returns. The law of diminishing returns technically in an economic sense, is that if you have a company and you ultimately are trying to produce something and you keep loading the workforce, the individual productivity of the individual doesn't go up, it goes down. Now, everyone knows that's boring. Nobody even cared what I just said. Here's what we say in pop culture. Stuff gets boring over time. Right? The law of diminishing returns. At first, it was super exciting, but the next time you engage with it, it's a little less exciting. Then it's a little less exciting and a little less exciting. That is the law of diminishing returns. Another law that operates in our universe is something that we have also twisted. It's the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy. Entropy, technically, is boring to talk about. It is actually that our universe, which if you think of it in a bubble... Right? You're glazing over. If you think of it in a bubble, inside that universe, it's using up energy and converting it. And whenever it does, it creates waste. And over time, it becomes less and less usable. The way pop culture talks about the law of entropy is that we tend towards disorder or we tend towards chaos or things break down. They don't get better. No matter how you want to look at it, we could spend all day long talking about the different laws at work in our universe, but I think we're pretty clear. Stuff doesn't satisfy, right? I mean, it just doesn't seem to be as great the following year as it was when we first got it. Some things seem so great at the beginning, and they just fall away. 
The second piece of that combination of being content, that secret, is satisfaction in Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We were designed to need God and to be fulfilled by God. If indeed our bubble universe has laws that cause diminishing, then the only thing that can satisfy has to be outside the bubble. Only God is outside that bubble, the uncaused cause. Therefore, he does not diminish or degrade in any way. He is constant. He is full. He is complete. He does not need. He is not lacking. So he is complete and full. Therefore, satisfaction can only be carried by the being that is outside of the system. What does that mean? It means that you will never have satisfaction in this life apart from Christ because he's the only one that has it in his pocket. And you can't get his satisfaction without him. It's an attached gig. It is a combo pack. God comes with his satisfaction. You don't get to separate the two. The world may maintain a certain level of satisfaction, but understand, apart from Christ, there is no ultimate satisfaction. So how can we say, man, I do have a car that I had, and I love it more than my family, and I, and you know, the world can say, I am successful, and I got everything going on, I have all the money I want, I have all the prestige I want, I'm excited about the job that I run. How can they say that they have ultimate satisfaction? Because we have lowered our standards. We have learned to settle for less. The deepest satisfying things of the world are found in Christ. Let's go through the list. We long for true love. How do you know that you long for true love? Because when you get any weakened version of it, it irritates you. If you are agitated by someone who is conditional with you. They love you a ton today. They don't love you as much tomorrow. If you are agitated by the idea that they love you for the value you bring to them, if you feel used, if you feel manipulated, if any of those distortions are in love and you're bothered by it, you know that it's because your heart is crying out for true love. That's what you want. That's not going to happen in a person. That's only going to happen in someone that doesn't need you, but they want you. We long for what? Eternal life. How do you know you long for eternal life? Because death really offends you. It should offend you. Death is part of a curse. It should be a problem to you. Because it stops what was going on. You don't want your relationship broken. You don't want them to go away. You don't want everything to shut down on you. You can't handle that. It causes you grief. And it causes you grief because inside your spirit was built to live forever. And so anything that falls away is disappointing. Now I could go on through the list. We long for freedom. That can only be found in Christ. We long for healing. That can only be found in the great physician. And it goes on and on and on. We have settled for less. Instead of the amazing meal that would be satisfying, we live off junk food in this world. The world only offers that which will ultimately malnourish us. And if we just fed on that, we would ultimately die. 
But we've now changed our taste buds because we've been disappointed so often in life. We said, I'm going to go insane if I keep my standards up. So we just knock them down. And we go, yeah, I'm good. I'm satisfied. With that? Yeah, whatever. We have lost our palate for the real. You know what I'm talking about? Taste. It's not, it's not interesting anymore. It's not, there's no palate there for fine foods. We've been so used to Twinkies that we don't, we don't know what it is to walk into a, a five-star restaurant from a, a Michelin star chef who creates something that is brilliant. We look at it and we go, ah, I don't know. I mean, there were deep fried Twinkies at the fair and I mean, Here's what I mean. We are told in the Bible that there's an ability to abide in Christ where we live in him and he in us and we derive our power and our authority and our lifeline from him. There's an ability to live in Christ every day that you would be completely in union with him and we find that concept boring. Really? We're going to talk about abiding for 45 minutes? Awesome. I want to go, right? Eh, just get on my phone again. We don't care. That's not exciting to us. We're talk. We're talking about peace that passes all understanding, and it's dull. We don't have a palate for the real things. We hear these stories about a still small voice where God Almighty Himself talks to Elijah, and we're like, ah, whatever. We're not moved by any of the real stuff. We have settled for less. We have been robbed of the taste of the real good things in life. That's why we don't seek satisfaction in Christ. We don't believe it's possible, nor is it interesting. A tricky verse is Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You ever heard that one? Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, what we all want is to hack off the first half of that verse, put a dot, 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 and then stick it on our fridge. He will give you the desires of your heart. We like that part. That's awesome. Right? Because what it means to us in our selfish little minds is that I'm going to get what I want. But it is a caveat phrase. It is a contingency phrase. It says, delight yourself in the Lord and then he will give you the desires of your heart. That means when you want what he wants, he can give you what you want. Because he will not encourage bad behavior. He will not encourage the toxicity that you're trying to shove into your life. He's not going to let you mask over. He's not going to let you manipulate. He's not going to have you pull full yourself with poison. Is that he says, no, when you want that which is ultimately good for you and good for the kingdom of God, I can lavish my blessings upon you. Now, I could have just said the fill in the blank. It's this. More stuff will not satisfy Now, that would have been a lot shorter for all of us. Could have just cut to the chase, but that was not nearly as interesting. More stuff will not satisfy. Now, before we move on, let me give you one more thought. I received a revelation in the shower yesterday. I know. I know. It's exciting. Normally, I do not receive revelations in the shower. I know other people that do receive revelations in the shower. It's not me. Normally, I'm just trying to get in and get out, right? So, uh, but as I am going through this process, I realize something. I have grown up with women. I live with all women because I have a wife and two daughters. I loofah. 
Just saying, just saying. Now, I did, I don't even know how real men bathe. I have no idea. Okay? Here's my impression. You rub the bar of soap on yourself just straight. My problem with that is the hair catching. That I do not like. That's gross. So I am now a loofah guy, which I know, I know. It's embarrassing, right? And just as a side note on that, my wife comes back from camp, switches out my man-sized loofah for a little girl-sized loofah. Now I have this tiny little wiry thing that I'm doing this with, and it takes me like 42 minutes just to shower. That has nothing to do with my revelation, but it is important that you know these things. Here's my revelation. Okay, lock this one in your head. You ready? Need is a relational bonding agent. Need is a relational bonding agent. Let me tell you why. How do we start this life? As a baby, our baby's in need. As a matter of fact, they're completely in need. They are totally contingent upon their parents. If you leave them to themselves... They will die. We're very clear. We begin with need. As a matter of fact, before we are even seen outside the womb, inside the womb, we are drawing all sustenance from another person. Even that drip line that's going through is keeping us alive and allowing us to grow. 100% vital attachment. Even how we receive sustenance outside the womb naturally creates a bond. It allows the parents and the child to have a relationship. There is a forced relationship based on need. Even as you're growing up, you still need less and less and less. And you'll notice that that fused relationship, whether functional or dysfunctional, makes your parents even later in life power players. Because the relationship was baked in through need. Need is a relational bonding agent. When I look at this stuff, I realize that's why it was not good for Adam to be alone. Remember why it forces a relationship. He had to have Eve and therefore they were forced to come together. Why do you think he all spreads out the spiritual gifts so that we all don't get all of them because it forces us to get together. It's the same reason why I created all kinds of stuff in marriage that creates need. It's the same reason for loneliness. It's the idea that it forces as a relational bonding agent. So as I'm going through all this and getting all this download in the shower, another thought strikes me. It helped clarify something that Jesus talked about a lot, but I've always found rather agitating. And it's this. It is hard for a rich man to get into heaven. It says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. Yet he seems to say everything's cool for the poor. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor. Why? I know poor people. I know rich people. There is no difference between the quality of their hearts. There is nothing beneficial about being poor in terms of a character development and things like that. I know people with idolatry that are wealthy and people who are idolatry worshipers that are poor i know people that are good and bad in both categories so why did jesus always seem to talk about how the poor had one up on the rich because they have one thing that rich don't have what is it need 
And if need is a relational bonding agent, then wealth is independence. Who do you need upon if you are poor, knowing that no one around you will help you? You need God. That need forces relationship. The benefit and blessing to the poor is they need God more than the wealthy. So whether they like it or not, they're being pushed together. And there is a blessing in that. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. I should shower more often. <laughs> Isaiah 61, 1. And the Bible is under the seat in front of you. It's page 620. We're in Isaiah 61, 1. We're going to do Isaiah 61 and 62 today. We're continuing last week's theme of how the Messiah will arrive and he will bless Israel. He will ultimately bring them through the fire of the tribulation and he will bring them into the millennial kingdom, a place of blessing where he will answer and fulfill his promises to the Jewish people. We talked about that a lot. Let's just continue on here. It begins like this. The spirit of Adonai Yahweh is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me. This is the Messiah talking. How do we know that? Because Messiah, by definition, means anointed one. Jesus' last name is not Christ. Christ means Messiah. Christ is a title, and it means the anointed. As a matter of fact, that title of Messiah is a fulfillment of passages like this here in Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me. When did the Messiah receive the Holy Spirit? We know that. And did you see right there in one portion of a verse, all the Trinity is there. You have Yahweh represented in the Father. You have the Holy Spirit coming upon the Messiah. And the Messiah is the second person of the Trinity, the Son. We now have all three members of the Trinity in one verse. And it happens again when this goes live. Jesus' baptism. Jesus goes into the water. A voice comes from heaven and says, This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And the spirit descends like a dove. You now have all three members of the Trinity interacting, carrying out this verse 700 years before it happened. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. One of the most powerful things about this passage is that Jesus stood up in a synagogue and read this exact passage. In the synagogue, it would work that the teachers or the rabbis would rise up and they'd go to the front and then they unroll a scroll and they'd either ask questions or they'd say comments on the passage, kind of like we do here. And they had multiple teachers. So when it was Jesus' turn, he walks up, finds the scroll of Isaiah, rolls it out, reads this passage and says, this is fulfilled in your hearing. We don't even need to wonder who are they talking about. We don't need to wonder what this prophecy is about. It's about Jesus. Why? He said it's about Jesus. But he didn't read the whole passage. Check this out. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up, to put back together, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled it up and set it down. He didn't even finish the sentence. He cut mid-sentence. Why would you do that? 
because the first part of that verse was fulfilled in his first coming. The second half is fulfilled in his second coming. He was splitting it out on purpose. He said, I am here to do the first portion. I will come back and I'll finish the sentence. What's the second part of the sentence? And I am here to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all those who mourn through the tribulation period. Through those who have been hurt. To grant to those who mourn in Jerusalem, Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. You ever heard the phrase, beauty for ashes? That's where it comes from. It's an Isaiah passage. The oil of gladness to brighten their face instead of the mourning and dour look of fasting. The garment of praise, meaning robes of blessing, good things, good news, instead of a faint spirit of being tired and worn down. That they, my people, the Jews, would be called oaks of righteousness, strong and mighty and firmly planted bastions of what is right and good and godly. They will be the planting of the Lord that he himself did and did it perfect. That he may be glorified. As cool as the stuff is that God creates, it's still about him, not about his stuff. The background for this passage, as I mentioned last week, It's two specific festivals of the Jews. Number one, it's the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is the one mandatory fasting day for the Jews at this point in history. They only had one. The Day of Atonement was a day that they believed that God would atone, cover over. It means put a lid on. Cover over their sin till one day the Messiah would remove it. But that covering over the sin allowed them to be purified to continue moving forward and to approach God. It was a special, the high holy day of the year. Additionally, every 50 years was called the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee was a re-rack for the nation. It was almost like a massive Sabbath for the entire land. They would cancel all debts. If you owed me money or if I owed you money, we just call it cool. We release all in-country slaves. Therefore, if they're trying to work off money to you as you cancel your debt, you set them free. We then take special tithes and offerings from all those that are wealthy, and we give it to the poor so that there is a resettling in the middle. You care for your friends and your family that do not have as much as you. All land that is family-owned is returned to the original family so that all is right again in the land. It coincides with a Sabbath year rest for the land that you do not till it or make anything of it. You let it rest. What's so amazing about that is Jesus took us as believers into the year of Jubilee, right? Because he did all those things. He set the captives free. We were captive to our sin. We were in slavery to our sin. He set us free. He restored that which has been robbed of us and given us back the promised land of our God. He made things right. He gave us blessings when we were lacking. He filled us back up and restored us. Are we tracking on all that? That's the background for all of this. Pick it up in verse 4. They, now now they're referring to non-Jews. That's us, Gentiles. Most of us are not Jews here by birth. And therefore, it's talking about us. They, 
in the end times in the millennial kingdom shall build up the ancient ruins, meaning from the past, from the tribulation, tear down and purification that has been ravaged over time. The Gentiles shall build up the ancient ruins for the Jews. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities all over Judea. The devastation of many generations. Imagine how many centuries have been in the Middle East where you scrape clean Jewish history and scrape clean Jewish history and build on it and build on it and build on it. Strangers, verse 5, meaning non-Jews, foreigners, Gentiles, shall stand and tend your flocks as your servants. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, meaning Gentiles will do all the common jobs. But you, verse 6, you, my Jewish people, shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. What do they get to do? They get to be around Jerusalem. They get to be around Jesus. Jesus is now in a, in a worldly rule in Jerusalem. He is now carrying out his will over the world in creation, ruling from Jerusalem. And we have the Jews around that area being able to carry out what they were supposed to do. Being the salt and light of the world, being the priesthood of God. And finally, they get to do what they were built to do. They get to have the excitement of carrying that out and getting that responsibility. Just like God loved all the Jewish people, but only had the Levites and the priests near the temple. So too does he love all people. But his firstborn son, Israel, gets to do the cool stuff and carry out his will. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Verse 7, instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Who in Jewish culture gets a double portion? The oldest son. Remember? In inheritance, you get a double portion. Remember the prodigal son story. We all like that story because it basically says that losers like us get to come back home. We all love that story, right? Hey, that guy was a complete loser and he got to come back, so I get to come back. The story was not primarily about individuals. The story was told to the Pharisees. Therefore, God was trying to tell the leaders of Israel, you are like the older son. And all these Gentiles, all these sinners and tax collectors, they're all coming into the kingdom and you won't even come to the party. You remember the story, right? That the prodigal son went out and wasted all of his inheritance and he came back and his father welcomed him. But the older son was bitter. Man, I am here every day. I'm always working for you. I'm all, I'm not the one that goes away. I do all the righteous stuff. I'm the guy that sticks in there. Oh, yay. Your son, who's a complete mess up, goes out, screws everything up, but he gets to come back and have a party. No, thank you. I'm not interested in going in. Understand that the older son didn't even go into the father's party. That's Israel. Jesus was saying, don't you understand? I know it's hard to be with me. I understand that it's been a tough go. But don't you understand you've been near me? Not everybody got to be near me. And so, yes, you're absolutely right. These Gentiles, these prodigal sons, they're all screwed up. I get that. But you know what? I want them too. I want them to come in. And when they get saved, we're supposed to be excited. Why are you so irritated? And the Jews go, what did they pay for? We've been out here playing your drama. 
since day one. Everything, oh, let's use the Jews for an example. Awesome. Well, that's not exactly cool with me. We don't get anything. So when it comes to time, we're waiting for our day. And when it comes to our day, I don't want that kid anywhere around me. Oops. And that bitterness seeped into their heart. It says they, all who see them, excuse me, end of verse 9. All who see them, all who see the Jews when God's done with them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. They'll finally get to be seen as the blessed kids. Let's talk about man's efforts versus God's efforts. How many times do you think the Jews have tried to make themselves a big deal? A lot. How has it worked out for them? Not awesome. No, they, no matter how many times they try to be a world power, they're just not. There was one time, and it was the under David, King David, the golden monarchy, they were like the big dogs. But do you realize that's only even a small area of the Middle East? They're still not that big of a deal. But one day, with Jesus at their core, they get to be a big deal. But all their efforts are not going to get them there. It's going to be God's efforts. So let me ask you, are you going to scrape and claw to try to be as big and bad as you can be, or are you going to wait on God's timing? Trust me, there are a lot of things that I feel like God has called me to do, and I had to wait on his timing, and I'm still waiting, and it's been decades, and I'm still waiting. The idea is, I don't want to force it. Whatever it is, I don't want to force it because if I force it, it blows up in my face. And then it's not only not what I wanted, but it eats me alive. So we have to learn how do we allow God to make the effort for God to do the work. And then we get to come in after him and partner with him. Or are you still trying to hammer out and make sure you're successful and famous and wonderful and great? Chapter 61 verse 10. Likely Jerusalem is speaking here, the city kind of symbolically. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with a garment of salvation, meaning he rescued me. He has covered me with a robe of deliverance or righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest in a beautiful outfit with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels... All I want to say, because I've commented on this a million times in other passages, I need you to understand the intimate language God uses with his people. He's using a wedding. What do we know about weddings? How are weddings consummated? What happens right after a wedding? What is the whole point of that day and the connection and the fusing and the two becoming one? Understand the depth of the language that God utilizes in seeking relationship with his creation. It's a big deal. Pick it up in 62.1. For Jerusalem's sake, for Zion's sake, I, this is like an imaginary person kind of witnessing the narrator. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nation shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. In other words, I can't stop talking about you're going to be restored, you're going to be restored, you're going to be restored until God gets it done. I know it will happen and I will not be silent. There's never a time I'm going to give up hope. There's never a time I'm going to say God won't follow through. I know that he will and when he gets done with you, he's going to give you a new name Why do you want a new name? 
Wasn't your old name awesome? It was, but if you know anything about the Bible, you know that God really enjoys giving you names. We all know him as Peter. That was not his first name. His first name was what? Simon. We know that Jacob became Israel. We know that Abraham used to be Abram. And it goes on and on and on. What's the point in giving somebody a new name? It means you have a new plan for them. He's going to give Israel a new name. Do you know that he's also going to give us a new name? Do you understand when you go to heaven, when you get a chance to be in the eternal life of Jesus Christ, he gives you a new name by saying, welcome to a brand new adventure with me. I have so much more exciting stuff for you. You haven't even begun to see what you can do. It says this. You shall no more, verse 4, you shall no more be be termed forsaken or abandoned. Your name shall no longer be named desolate or wiped out. But you shall have the name, my delight is in her, and your land will be called married, as opposed to left, divorced, distraught. End of verse 5. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. We are too quiet in our praise. We are too quiet in our worship. I do not mean necessarily anything having to do with our worship songs that we sing together. I do not want to degrade that in any way. Do you understand that us coming together and singing worship songs is a significant piece of community? We are called to come together and sing out loud together and worship the Lord. That's kind of how it goes. There is an intensification of God's power here when we come together. It's the whole point of coming together. We corporately sing and challenge each other and get us all fired up to talk about how great God is. So I don't want to diminish that in any way. But unfortunately, some of us are allowing that to be the only times we're loud about praising God. That is insufficient. Let me explain why. Let's say we play a song by Chris Tomlin. Chris Tomlin wrote a song about the goodness he interacted with God about and had something amazing he saw and he reflected that back to the Lord and then we all borrow those terms and talk about how great God is. I think that's awesome. But when are you going to talk about the great things that God did with you? I understand we're borrowing his terms so we can all get on the same page. But if that is the only praise coming through the words in the mouth of someone else, that is not sufficient. We need to be on the horn calling our friends and saying, you're never going to believe what God did for me today. You need to be out loud about it. Well, that's kind of a private thing. No, it's not. You're just kind of a wimp. Get on the phone and tell people what God is doing. Because if God's doing stuff in my life, and then you sound off and talk about God doing stuff in your life, now it sounds like God's doing stuff all the time. And we get excited, and our faith is built up. The other thing is, the world doesn't know God is awesome. You go, well, it's kind of obvious God is awesome. No! You think it's obvious because you have the Holy Spirit in you constantly telling you God is awesome. They don't have that. They don't think God is awesome. You know, the, way, the only way they're going to know God is awesome is if you say it. Why in the world would they want to add on, that's how they see it, add on dour Christianity to their life 
if you aren't fired up about God, why in the world would they have any interest? There is no out loud, I gotta tell the person at Starbucks, God did this. There is none of that. I gotta tell everybody what God's doing in my life. There's great stuff going on and I want everybody to know about it. We gotta get louder about our praise. It says this in verse six. On your walls, O Jerusalem, God, or the Messiah is speaking here. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. Now historically, watchmen are angels. I have set angels, and all the day and night they will never be silent. For how long? End of verse 7. Until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Do you know how much hard work God is going through to make sure that Israel is glorified? If he's going to put that much hard work in, what about you? How much patience has he extended to you? How much grace? How much kindness? How much hard work is he putting into every one of his children to make sure that we are made into the image of God? And that we get home washed and ready to go. Let's finish it up. Verse 10. Go through, go through the gates. Now, I don't know if that's out of Babylon to go home or that's into the gates of Jerusalem that they're rebuilding. I don't know. Go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway. The highway is the ramp that would help you get up on the top of the wall. Instead of a staircase, they would have a little ramp on the inside of the walls. Clear it of stones, make it ready, restore it. Lift up a signal over the people. Notify everyone that a great work is being done. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, that's a nickname for Jerusalem. Behold, your salvation comes and behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Pause. Did you catch what he just did to you? If I was to say to you, your salvation has come, you'd immediately think of outcomes. My salvation has come. That means I'm free. And then it says that your salvation is a person. Oops. You went to outcomes. He said it's a person. Your salvation is Jesus Christ. It's not what he buys for you. It's not all the good stuff he does for you. It's actually him. And yes, when he shows, he's got rewards for his kids in his pockets. But no, it is him that is your salvation. Verse 12, and they, when God is done with them, the Jewish people shall be called the holy people, the people set apart for God's special purpose, the covenant people of Yahweh, the redeemed of the Lord, those bought back from slavery. You shall be called sought out, meaning we seek the voice of God, a city not forsaken, not neglected, but pursued and focused on and cherished. Some of us need to live today in contentment in light of where we're headed. You're right, I don't get everything I want right now, but this ain't my time. There will come a day when I will be able to be at peace and have joy and have excitement, but today's not that day. Listen, we close this whole thing out with looking at this. God is the source and essence of satisfaction. He is our fullness, our contentedness, our peace. And as we abide in him, as we get closer to him, the divine nature in us accelerates and we come alive. If we want to be full, we must be with him. But unfortunately, too many of us have gotten used to junk food and his food doesn't even taste good. How do we clean our palates? And once again, appreciate the good things of God. Praise the Lord, it's not only up to us.
Praise the Lord that he knows how to get through us and renew us and transform us. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for both challenge and exciting encouragement. That Lord, as good as you are to the Jewish people, I know you are just as good to your adopted kids, us. I know that as we've been grafted into your family, we are partakers of all the excitement and the inheritance and the crazy great things. We just want to praise you out loud and tell you that we love you. We want to tell you that you are good. You're a wonderful father. You're a great shepherd. You are an awesome king. So we praise you this morning. Use us in whatever fashion you wish that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Closing challenge this week. We need him, not stuff, to help gain perspective. Do communion personally every day this week. Reflecting on your need for Christ. Of course, if you need a little bread recipe on how to make unleavened bread, it's right there on communionbread.org.